it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 29th, 2014. Still on the road. We've got more PCR conference audio for you today. And this is the one that's going to be the most controversial, I think. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles to see if what God's Word says actually squares with what people are saying that it says. Now, since I'm on the road, uh, I've been uh, putting together the audio from the Pirate Christian Radio Conference. Again, um, the uh, the primary audio was corrupted due to a faulty piece of equipment. The second backup wasn't as good, and so we're using our third backup for the audio. And thankfully, that worked. Um, and I've had to kind of tweak it in order for you to hear it. But uh, what we're going to be listening to today uh, from the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Conference uh, rec- recorded in, you know, uh, in August of uh, this year, Clinton, Iowa, uh, the, the conference title was Shalom and the Means of Grace, talking about peace with God and the objective means of grace. And uh, each of the opening plenary uh, sessions had to do with, well, uh, ways in which there is no peace with God due to a faulty thing, you know, in somebody's theology, kind of prevalent uh, pitfalls within American evangelicalism and, and you know, kind of human-ish uh, spirituality. Now, uh, we're going to be listening to uh, Pastor Jordan Cooper and uh, his opening ple- plenary on the tyranny of fruit-checking. And I, I will, I've said this, I'll kind of reiterate it. This is probably the most controversial of the uh, of the plenary sessions, due to the fact that uh, Jordan uh, makes no bones about the facts, the fact that he is a former Calvinist and now he's a confessional Lutheran, and uh, what he's going after in this uh, in this opening lecture is the type of fruit checking that is well, kind of indicative of Puritan uh, Calvinism. So, uh, which you know Jordan knows from personal experience. So. Those of you who are familiar with Calvinism, you know, or you are a Calvinist, you may be offended by this. All I can say is, is that uh, it, it's not offense for the sake of offense. Here's the idea. Just listen to what he's saying, open up your Bible, and compare what he's saying to God's Word. If what he's saying squares with Scripture, believe what he's saying, because he's saying the same thing. If what he's saying doesn't actually square with Scripture, yeah, then chuck it. That's how we work here at Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I would say this. I think... Uh, Jordan Cooper makes a very strong case here that the uh, the the passage that is primarily used to kind of cause people to to trust whether or not see whether or not they're really a Christian based upon their fruit checking, well that that text isn't about the kind of fruit checking that uh, it that is being promoted there, and as a result of it, I think he's got a rock solid biblical case regarding this particular practice. And again, the, the point is to point us to the objective means of grace, uh, which will be in the second round of lectures, which we'll get to in a few weeks. But without any further ado, here's Pastor Jordan Cooper and his lecture on the tyranny of fruit checking. Thank you. It's really great to, to be here this evening. I'm really happy to, to talk to you all and talking to you about something that I've had quite a bit of experience with in my own past and uh, some of the experience that I've had in churches. I want to start off with a text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so we we see this metaphor about fruit in Scripture quite a bit. It's used a lot in the Gospels. 
Uh, Martin Luther liked to use this metaphor. It's, it's something that shows up a lot in Christian history. For example, St. Ignatius of Antioch uh, was very fond of using this fruit metaphor. And when we find false theology in history, when we find people teaching things that are unhelpful, unscriptural, there's always a grain of truth in what they say. Because if there was not a grain of truth in what they said, then it wouldn't be deceptive and people wouldn't believe it. And so first we have to acknowledge, before we get to the error, that there is something true here. There is something true about Christians being like trees who bear fruit. And that means that if we are Christians, we will do good works. It is the nature of the Christian to do good works. There is no Christian who does not do good works. But we do it because it is our nature, because we have been recreated, we have been regenerated by God's grace and holy baptism, and so we, by nature, do good works. We do produce fruit. Now that much, we can say, is true. One of my favorite theologians, Revere Franklin Wiener, he's an early American Lutheran theologian, and he has a great textbook on ethics. And he starts off the book on ethics by distinguishing the Reformed from the Lutheran perspectives on good works and ethics. And I think what he says is exactly right. Now, when you get to the Protestant Reformation, you're not going to end up with two churches, the Roman Catholic Church and then the Lutheran Church. But there are all sorts of branches of the church that arise at that time. You have the Lutheran Church and you have the Reformed Church as the two major branches within the magisterial Protestant Reformation. And they both agreed on the doctrine of justification. They both agreed that justification is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, both his active and his passive obedience. But then there was the question of good works. Now everybody agreed that we should do good works. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Reformed, everybody agrees good works are good things, and we should do them. But we get to the question of the role of good works. And this is where I want to get to what Revere Franklin Wiener says. He says that the main difference between the two branches of the Reformation on this issue of ethics or good works or sanctification is why you do good works, the motivation for doing those good works. And what he says is for the Reformed, you do good works to know that you are saved. And he says for the Lutheran, you do good works because you know that you are saved. And so it is precisely because of the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ that we know we are saved by faith alone, because of what Christ has done, that is then why we do good works. That is where the fruit comes from. But I want to talk about the other view today. The other way that Christians have historically looked at this. Because we know that we're not Roman Catholic, we know that good works don't justify us, but what do they do? What good are they if they don't justify us? This is a question that we kind of all have to ask ourselves, and we've all asked many times, and theologians have answered in many, many different ways. Now, I want to read you just a couple things from some Reformed writers and preachers on this subject. This is from a recent book called Antinomianism from uh, Mark Jones, who's a famous Reformed writer, uh, reformed author, and, and in this book he discusses the issue of good works, and he cites a number of different uh, Puritan writers and some other older Reformed writers on this, this issue. And he cites this, this logical syllogism that, that explains how we know we are saved. He's asking the question, how do we know that we love Christ and are saved? And this is what he says, he outlines this, he says, those who keep God's commandments love Christ. That's the major premise. And the, the minor premise is, by the grace of God, I keep God's commandments. And the conclusion is, I love Christ. And so the way that we know that we're saved, if you're going to, to take it this way, is by looking at our works. We have to ask ourselves, how do I know I'm saved? We don't look to the cross, we don't look to the sacraments where God brings himself to us and his gifts. But we have to look inside of ourselves and say, do we really have the fruits that show that we are saved? And here is uh, another question. That is, is a quote from Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's uh, successor. 
And Calvin says this in a catechism that he writes. He, he asks the question, how does a person know if he has faith or not? He precedes this by saying, how do we know we are saved? We are saved if we have faith. But how do we know we have faith? And he answers, by good works. I want to read you one other thing. This is, this is from a message from a man named Paul Washer, a very famous uh, preacher in Calvinistic Baptist circles primarily. And this is part of one of his messages, and this is what he says. He says, I hear people all over the world, and especially in this country, tell me that they are saved. And I ask them, how do you know that you are saved? Well, because they believe. How do you know that you believe? Well, I know in my heart of hearts that I am saved. The Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Do you really want to trust a heart that can be wicked? Examine yourself. Take the word of God and what the word of God says about a true Christian. And if you fall short of the test, repent. And then he goes on to ask questions like, well, let me ask you this. When was the last time you wept over your sin? Or this one. Do you tremble at God's word? Or do you look for loopholes around it? Essentially what he's saying is, you have to ask yourself these questions to know if you're really saved. And, and it's put forward as if the Bible contains a number of tests. And you have to follow these tests and pass these tests, and if you pass the tests, then you know that you're really saved. There's one popular writer who actually outlines a specific test, and he actually has little check boxes, and you can check off how well you've done. And if you've done well enough, you know you're saved. If you miss one or two, I don't know. If you miss all of them, I guess you're not. Now, this is a very popular teaching that you find in today's church, and not only in today's church, but it's something you find throughout the history of the church. Because if we can't have works adding to our justification, we want to somehow sneak them in and say that somehow, maybe they don't contribute to our salvation. But we only know of our salvation, we can only be assured of our salvation, if we then look at our good works. I think what's very deceptive about this kind of teaching is that it's partially correct, because if you listen to these speakers, they are criticizing something. They're criticizing that thing that evangelicals were raised with, that I was raised with, that many of you here were raised with, and that is the altar call. This idea that... There is, well, this sacrament, essentially, of the altar call, that we are in church and a service, and we get emotional, and the pastor tells us we have to make a decision for Jesus, and we come forward at the altar, and at that moment we are saved if we say a certain prayer, and no matter what happens, we can never not be saved just because we said those specific words. Now, there are a lot of preachers who are fighting against, and rightfully so, this kind of teaching. But what's happened is that people within Baptist or non-denominational circles are arguing against this kind of teaching, but they don't have the sacraments. They don't have the means of grace. And so they don't know what to do with it. They know this is wrong, but they don't know how to give an answer. And so the answer they give to the altar call question is, well, it's not that kind of a change that you need. It's a more drastic change. It's a more drastic change of heart than you find in an altar call that saves you. And so then you begin looking at your fruit and asking questions. Have I really experienced a change? Is my heart really different? Is it different from the unbeliever down the street? This isn't something new, but we find this in theology for quite some time, especially within Calvinistic circles. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, and I don't want to say that all Calvinists are going to do this, or to this much of an extreme, but that is where you're going to find this kind of teaching. You find this especially in the Puritans. The Puritans who wanted a pure church in response to the Church of England. Now you find this especially in the American Puritans, especially during the time period of the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was a time of revival. It's a time that most American Christians look back on and think wonderfully about, as if we could just go back to this Great Awakening. We could have another awakening. But it's the Great Awakening that destroyed the American church. There are a number of reasons for that. <coughs> well, the Great Awakening began focusing 
not on the means of grace, because so many people were cut off from even being able to take the supper at all, but was focused on the inward experience of the Christian. The Great Awakening was a time when preachers were speaking apart from actual congregations, who were telling people to leave their dead churches because they didn't have enough power that their churches did, even though they preached doctrine that was correct and preached the gospel, because they didn't have the same kinds of conversion experiences. And this really is where we see the, the push inward that was just talked about before, about subjectivism coming into the American context within the church. This is a large reason why this grew so fast was the Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening is even worse, but the First Great Awakening really is the start of all of it. Now, during the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards had, Jonathan Edwards, of course, being the most famous preacher of the Great Awakening, who preached in western Massachusetts, where I grew up. Jonathan Edwards had something that he was struggling with, which was, how do I know that people are really being converted? <coughs> because you have these meetings and these, these services where people would get very emotional, they would cry, they would scratch at the pews, they would fall all over themselves. And conversions were happening. There were mass conversions. But like today, when you see a mass conversion in a church service, there are some people who are going to feel very emotional. They're going to get saved. And then what happens afterward? They never walk in the door of a church again. It's just an experience they had. It might last for a couple months at most. And then it doesn't mean anything anymore. And Jonathan Edwards was faced with this question. How do we know that the people in your revival are actually being converted or not? It's a question that he had to answer because there were, very, there were many critics of the Great Awakening. And he answered this by writing a book called The Religious Affections. Now, The Religious Affections is the last book I had read as a Calvinist. And it really pushed me over the edge to, to leave because I knew that... I couldn't do this anymore, and I'll tell you why. The book deals with the question of true conversion. How do you know you're saved? Now, we can talk about good works, as I mentioned before, as being the sign that you're saved, but you have a problem. Well, what's the problem? The problem is my neighbor down the street, maybe they're a Mormon, and they do a lot of good works, better than I do. So what kind of a judge is that? Well, then it's not just the outward good works. Well, what is it? Well, we could say maybe it's the conversion experience. That's how we know. But wait a minute. We have a lot of people we know that had the conversion experience. It didn't continue in the faith afterwards, so we know that conversion wasn't genuine. So it's not your conversion experience. You have to actually look further inward. It's, in fact, your affections, your loves. Do you truly desire God? Do you truly desire God's law? And you're looking further and further inward to see, am I set apart and how am I set apart from the non-believer next to me? And I read through this book, and I finished the book, I read it pretty quickly within a week, and I said, if this theology is correct, I am not saved, and neither was he, and neither is anybody. Because I know my affections... And well, God has worked in me a love for himself, a love for his law. I also have desires, all sorts of desires, that go against that. And on some days, I really don't feel like I love God very much at all. So what do I do with it? Well, this is kind of the root of the issue. And this spread throughout American Christianity, and it's seeing a big revival today. And a lot of that is through the reading of Jonathan Edwards. Now we talk about the new Calvinism. It's kind of this, the cool new thing for the past few years has been to be a Calvinist within evangelicalism because people see the problems with the Arminian decision theology that they find there and they want something else. And they turn to the new Calvinism. Well, the interesting thing about the new Calvinism is that the new Calvinism is not the old confessional Calvinism. But it's a Calvinism that is born out of the Great Awakening. It is a Calvinism that is born out of subjectivism and a loss for any real need for the means of grace. And so in a lot of Calvinistic Baptist circles or non-denominational Calvinistic circles, 
you're going to find the influence of the Great Awakening, and this is the kind of theology that you're going to find. Now, what, what does this theology do? Well, what are the practical effects of this theology? Why does this matter? Why are we speaking about this? Why should we take our time to talk about fruit-checking? Well, I know because I've seen it. I have had many calls to my office. People listen to my program and they look up the, my church and find the phone number and call my office. It happens all the time. And every once in a while, I, I do get a call that really that, that makes me feel like the things that I do are actually worth it. And, and the most important calls I've gotten are from people who say, I was under this kind of preaching. I was under this kind of preaching that said that I had to have this conversion experience, that God had to do it, that I had nothing to do with it, but that my works had to be a sign of my faith. And I struggled, and I've struggled for years, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I've attended this Calvinistic church for years, and I've talked to my pastor, but I am about to give up. And I've heard from many of these people who have told me that because they have listened to my program or the other programs on Pirate Christian Radio, The White Horse Sin, or issues, etc., they have actually remained in the Christian faith. Because they realized that there was something beyond themselves that could give them assurance. One of the major points that CFW Walther makes in his of course, excellent work, a proper distinction between law and gospel, is that you do not preach the law to terrified sinners. And that's exactly what this kind of teaching does. You're seeing people who are, who are saying, I want to be saved, I desperately want to be saved, and you're standing there and you're not telling them, Jesus forgives you, he died for you. I forgive you all of your sins. Instead, you are saying, well, you have to have the right affections. You have to know that God has really converted your heart. And I pray that he will convert your heart. There's a story that, that Paul Washer tells. Where, where he meets with, with a person who, who is dying and they want to be saved. And they say, they say, I want to be saved, Pastor. But I don't feel it. I haven't had this conversion. My affections haven't been changed. God has not regenerated me out of his sovereign grace. What do I do? And he said... Read your Bible. Go read through the Gospel of John. And he says this statement to this person. I forget if it's a man or a woman, but he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this for you. God is going to work through it, or you are going to die and go to hell if God does not choose to do that. And I'm preaching about this because this is a... a speaking, not preaching, about this, because it, it is a damning Gospel. For a lot of people, because there are many, many people who will not be given the gospel, they will be given the law, when all they need is to hear the word of forgiveness. And there are many people who will give up their Christian faith because they know that they don't have the right kind of fruit. And so this matters. This matters a lot. It matters as much as life and death, heaven and hell. And so I want to take a look at some of the texts. I want to look at some of the texts that these people use to argue for this kind of theology. And so if you have scripture with you, uh, you can look along with me if you have your iPhones or a Bible or anything else. Now the first text that I want to look at is from Matthew chapter 7, because this is the text that you are going to hear used over and over again by people who hold to this kind of theology. Matthew chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to start reading at verse 15. I'm going to read through verse 23. Now, the headings in your Bible will kind of separate the section about false prophets from the section about self-deception as it's labeled here. But of course, those are not original and... I think having that division there makes us maybe think these are two separate topics, but they're not. And that's important. So starting at verse 15, Matthew says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On this day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now this text is used to say that even if you say, Lord, Lord, if you have faith, if you think you have faith, that doesn't mean that you're going to be saved because you could say, Lord, Lord, throughout your life, you could have a profession of faith and think that you're in the faith, be baptized, receive the supper regularly, but then God will say to you, no, I did not actually know you because your good works were not good enough. They were not a good enough sign of faith. But I want to tell you this evening that that's not at all what Paul is even talking about. Or Matthew, sorry. What Matthew is talking about here is false teachers. We see that as we see the beginning of this text. Matthew says, beware of false prophets. The fruit that he's talking about here is false teaching. He's talking about the fruit of their teaching. That's why as you go on to the second section starting in verse 21, what is the defense that these people have? The defense is... When God says he doesn't know them, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? These are people who claim to be prophets. These are people who claim to be working miracles. But the fruit is that they are not preaching the gospel. They are not preaching according to who Jesus really is and what scripture actually teaches. <coughs> if you want to see what this text is about... Turn on any episode of Fighting for the Faith, and you're inevitably going to find it. <laughs> and so while it's true that Christians do good works, Christians have fruits, it's not true that we have to worry that God is somehow going to reject us because we don't have enough of them. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's PCR conference audio from Pastor Jordan Cooper on the tyranny of fruit checking. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> summoned here to answer for your crimes against the church. Hold on. What crimes? All I know is that an hour ago, I was sound asleep in my own bed, minding my own business, and then you people broke into my house, threw a black bag over my head, and then forcibly dragged me to this horrible place. And you. Oh, <laughs> you. You have the audacity to tell me that I've committed a crime. Silence! We will not tolerate insolence for the mouth of the guilty. 
Let the trial begin. Oh, pyrotechnics. <laughs> nice touch. Sitting in James McDonald's place today is High Chancellor Mark Driscoll. Thank you, bailiff. Please read the charges. Henry Wigan, you have been charged with high treason against Harvest Bible Chapel for having an unauthorized opinion. You've got to be kidding me. Is it true that on your blog that you accused James McDonald of being financially irresponsible? Of course. Plunging the church into $65 million of debt is... Silence! We have already heard your opinion, and it is for this slanderous accusation that you have been brought here before us. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. Oh, is it? We shall now vote on the validity of your so-called opinion. All of those in favor of Mr. Wiggins' opinion being null and void, say aye. simply vote away facts because you disagree with them? In the church, it is the elder board that has the ultimate authority to decide what is truth and what is not. When we add consensus, we speak for God. It is for precisely this heretical worldview held by the elder board that I created my blog in the first place. Church matters are not to be tried in the court of public opinion. Publicizing viewpoints rejected by the elder majority for any reason is satanic to the core and must be dealt with very directly, which is why you are here. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is if the elder board were to vote on what color the sky is, then whatever the majority agrees on, be it purple, pink, or brown, would be reality, regardless of the fact that the sky is clearly blue. Yes! Were you dropped on your head as a child? That's beside the point. What you fail to realize is that the cult of the individual is coming to an end. We are the collective, you see. We must eradicate the poisonous ideology of individualism from the conscious minds of our church community if we are to fulfill the vision of our leader. <laughs> you know, that sounds an awful lot like fascism, if you ask me. Or anybody else for that matter. If that's what it takes... Then so be it. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could constantly come supremely dissatisfied with uh, fruit checking. Yeah, that's never going to really provide assurance of your salvation. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, 
fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture from Pastor Jordan Cooper on the tyranny of fruit checking. Here we go. So let's look at some other text that I have here. Well, let's, let's look at the book of 1 John, because the, the text that you're going to find referred to the most are that one right there from Matthew chapter 7 and the whole book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is said by many in this camp to be a number of tests. It outlines a number of tests. There's the moral test, there is the doctrinal test, there's a test of love for your brothers, and you have to check off basically everything on that list to know that you have eternal life, as John speaks about in this epistle. Well, let's stop and actually think about what the book of 1 John is all about. Well, let's stop and look at the most famous part, probably, of the book of 1 John in chapter 1, and see how does John actually begin his letter. In in verse 6 of chapter 1, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then he goes on to say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Those are probably very familiar words to all of us. I think it's important that John starts with this message. John starts his epistle by saying, if you confess, you are forgiven. He doesn't outline any ifs, ands, or buts to it. He doesn't say, well, if you have true faith, you're only going to know that if you read the rest of the book. Then, if you confess, you're forgiven. But if you confess and your faith is not really genuine, you will not be forgiven. John doesn't say that. Now, the book of 1 John... It's important to see who this book is being written to, because throughout this book, it does talk about the importance of good works. It does talk about the importance of loving one another. But who is John writing to? Well, John is writing to a group of of people who were maybe influenced by not full-blown Gnosticism per se, because that took some time to actually fully develop, but some kind of a proto-Gnosticism. In other words, he, he speaks, for example, about the flesh of Jesus. So if you read commentators in 1 John, they're going to to emphasize the fact that John emphasizes the fleshliness of Jesus. You see that in some of the language that he uses here about handling the word of truth, actually touching and feeling the word of truth, Jesus Christ. Now, the Gnostic groups had all sorts of different ideas that you're going to find out there. And one of the ideas that you're going to find within Gnostic groups and some of the Gnostic groups, is that they would say, well, since the body is bad, Jesus didn't have a body, and it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And so it lends itself to this kind of antinomianism, where you say it doesn't really matter what we do, because it's the spirit that matters, our bodies can do whatever we want. And so if you're dealing with this error, you are going to say, hey, you need to do good works. And if, if you are one of these people that's confessing Jesus and professing one false doctrine by saying that Jesus doesn't have a body, well, then you're not saved because you're believing a false gospel. If you are saying, I am a Christian, but you don't even have repentance, you could care less about your sin, you're living for yourself, then it would be safe to say you don't really have repentance. You cannot have faith without repentance. And that much is true. I cannot live my entire life without repenting, without confessing my sins, and just saying, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and care less about anything else. That much is false, a false profession of faith. You 
find that mentioned in our tradition and in our confessions themselves. But that's what John is talking about. John is talking about people who are saying, my life doesn't matter in any way whatsoever, and I will sin as much as I want. And of course, we have things like excommunication for that reason, because we want people to repent of their sins. But the answer to these problems, if you see somebody living in this kind of unrepentant sin that claims to be a Christian, what do you say? That's all, it's a bad thing, okay? We can all agree that that's not good. If, if you know, you're talking to a guy, he's living with his girlfriend, and you say, that's really not what, what God's will is, and he says, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. What do we do? Well, I think there is where we get the real, at the real heart of the issue pastorally and say, what, what is the answer to this? And I think if we want to see what the answer to that is, we can look at the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm going to be talking about 1 Corinthians uh, tomorrow as I discuss baptism, so I'm not going to speak about it, I guess, very much, but let me just say a few things. Now, the Corinthians were a bad group of people. If you want to see people that were messed up, you want to see the Corinthian church. They're divided against one another. They're saying that they're following people instead of actually following Jesus. If someone is, is sleeping with his mother-in-law, no one's even doing anything about it. They're letting him take the supper and just kind of ignoring it. Things that Paul says even the pagans look down upon. And you have this group of messed up people that you would look at them and say, they are not Christians. This is the kind of situation that the preachers I'm speaking about are dealing with. But I want to look at what their answer is and what Paul's answer is. What their answer is, is to say, you are not saved. You have never been saved. Your conversion experience wasn't real. And you need to actually be saved. You need to actually be regenerated. Because it's never actually happened for you before. But how does Paul address the Corinthians throughout the letter? What does he call them? Saints. Saints, holy ones. They are holy. Even though they are really messed up, they are holy. He tells them that they were washed, they were sanctified. All of this happened in the past to them through their holy baptism. They have been set apart as God's people. And he says, you have been set apart as God's people, so live like God's people. He doesn't say, you're not God's people, so you better act like it so you become God's people, or I hope you really become God's people when your experience is good enough. No, but he says, it is the gospel that is the fuel for your works. You better repent because you are a forgiven child of God, you are in Christ, and you should live like someone who's in Christ. Rejoice in the gospel and do the will of God. Not as a slave, but as an obedient child who loves his heavenly Father, who has redeemed him, and who has saved him. And that's where we get at this essential distinction that we have to see between how the, the Puritans and many of the Reformed have seen good works, and what the role of good works is, and how the Lutheran tradition historically has spoken of good works. And so we get back to, to the observation of Revere Franklin Wiener, which is that, what role do good works play? Are they, do we do good works so we know we're saved? Or do we do good works because we know that we are saved? Think about how St. Paul deals with this elsewhere. For example, in the book of Romans, he preaches the gospel very, very clearly throughout the first six chapters of Romans. He describes the Christian struggle in Romans chapter 7. And then we get to Romans 12. He talks about some of the practical issues about good works and how they should live their lives, how they should honor God and love one another, or a mundo, for the world. He says, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This language of sacrifice is very important. This is language that is used a lot in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. This language of sacrifice is important because it's Eucharistic sacrifice, meaning a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, I don't offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving if I have nothing to be thankful for. If I don't know that I am really saved, I am not doing my good works as a thank offering because I don't really know if I have anything to be thankful for or not. I'm unsure. 
but it's the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ that is the very foundation of our good works, of those fruits that are spoken about here in Luke's Gospel, as I read in the beginning of this, of this lecture. And so we do good works as God's people, not because we need to be assured in any way, but because God wants us to do them. And we are thankful for God's grace, for the gospel that he has given to us, the forgiveness of sins, the perfect righteousness that comes through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And I finally want to take a look at the book of Romans, the seventh chapter, because that really is at the heart of this issue. And I could spend a very long time dealing with Romans chapter 7 because it's such an important text. It's such a hotly debated text. And what you're going to find from preachers that emphasize the idea that we have to constantly check our fruits to really know if we've actually been saved is they are going to say that Romans 7 is not about Paul's Christian life. They're going to say that Romans 7 is about something else. Now, there's a number of interpretations that you can come to. Say, well, it was a Jew under the law, it's actually describing Adam, it's describing Paul uh, pre-conversion, whatever solution you want to come up with. They say that this text cannot speak about Paul in his present Christian experience, because if it does, then Paul would not pass the test that they give to everyone else. So it's a text that we probably all know well, but let us read it again. Starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now what if, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my innermost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That is the Christian experience. And if you are spending your life navel-gazing and fruit-checking to make sure you've really been saved, well, what's it going to come out to if this is a Christian experience? Well, I think the inevitable result is you're going to look at yourself and say, I have not measured up. I see this sin at war within me. I, I desire God's law, but, but, it's, but the sin is crushing me and I'm not doing what I should do. And you come to the conclusion that there really is no assurance for you. And I have spoken to so many people who have told me this, who have sat under this preaching for years. Some who have contemplated suicide because of this. But we have the freedom of the gospel, and that's where we find our assurance. Not inside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves in terms of how we've been changed, our sanctification. Though those things are a reality and a very important one. They are not where our assurance ultimately lies, but they lie in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, there are two results that are going to occur from this kind of preaching. And the one is that I have spoken about uh, before, which is you're going to be in despair. You are going to say, I am not saved because I keep checking my fruits every day. I'm looking at myself to see... If I cried over my sin enough. I heard a preacher one time say, if you were bored during the sermon I just preached, you're not saved. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've been bored during sermons. <laughs> I expect that my sermons might bore some people. But I don't think that they are not saved. 
Now, there's so much that goes into this fruit checking that inevitably there's going to be some tests that you're not going to pass. And so the one option is that you fall into despair, but there's another option. This is one that you're going to find from people who have gone to these churches or pastors in these kinds of churches. And that is pride. Because they know in their heart of hearts that they are not passing the test that they are giving to other people. And so they have to deceive themselves into thinking that they have actually passed the test and others have not. You kind of walk around looking at everybody else skeptically thinking, I bet they're not really a Christian. I saw what they did yesterday. I saw the way they spoke to their wife. They're not really saved, but I am. I gotta go get them really saved. <clears throat> In the most extreme situations, this actually uh, leads itself into cults. There is actually a cult somewhere in the south, I can't remember what state it was in, but there actually is a cult led by a follower of Paul Washer. And on their cult's website, they have a picture of Paul Washer and John MacArthur and some other people. And they have these, these quotes from these people that are, that are talking about fruit checking. They're saying, we are actually the same people because we have the fruits and you don't. And they live in a commune and do the whole cult thing. Now, that doesn't mean that people who believe this ideology are part of a cult. But this is the most extreme form of the kind of pride that can come from that type of preaching. It's a very dangerous thing. And something that we really need to watch out for. Because it truly is a very dangerous teaching. And I think I've just about used up my time. and I guess I should end this message with just saying that there is assurance to be found... But the assurance that is to be found is not in our fruits, it's not in our good works, it's not in the change within us, but the assurance that we are to look at is the external promise of God through His Word. As it is given to us, as the Word is proclaimed to us, as the absolution is proclaimed to us, as we receive the triune name of God in our holy baptisms, as we receive Christ's own body and blood in the Supper, that is where we find our assurance. Not within, but from without where God comes to us. I'll end with I'll end with that. Thank you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>